of uh, excitement. I heard that we had a sermon about demons. I don't know how that happened. Um, but a lot of excitement. We get to go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I need to let you, uh, hear um, uh, Keith's sermon on demons. I heard it was really great because as far as demon sermons go, that one's the best one. Um, uh, but we are turning back to uh, Matthew um, 17. Actually, we'll read this passage again once more where a man approaches uh, Jesus with a demonic problem, but continue reading uh, into seeing the whole reason or meaning behind why we are introduced to Jesus Christ this way in Matthew 17. Starting at verse uh, 14, there's a very strong theme, pretty strong theme, uh, in this series of sermons we'll be doing through Matthew uh, of sonship or being children of God. You'll notice that as we read now and even into the weeks ahead, that you have a man coming to Jesus on behalf of his son. That Jesus said he is the son of man, therefore he must suffer. That he doesn't want to pay a temple tax because the sons are free. That the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He said, children. That the disciples kept all the kids from Jesus, and Jesus said, let the little ones come to me. It's all about children here throughout this lesson we have of Jesus. We learn that as children of God, we truly are free. And so let us learn what that is today in God's Word, John 7, uh, Matthew 17, 14. A man came to Jesus and he said this. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's a tremendous promise. It's 100% true. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed by this. Because, well, we're going to move mountains. This would be a good one to move. Why not? And they came to Capernaum. And they were the collectors of the two drachma tax. They went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, 
then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so, in presenting God's word this morning in that fashion, there could be a fair question to say, what is this all about? Why are these particular events tied so closely together in Matthew's gospel? What is he trying to say about our Lord, Jesus Christ? Why is he choosing to present Jesus Christ to you this morning this way? You have the reality of this mountain that can be moved if you simply just had not even a tremendous amount of faith, just sincere, devoted faith in Jesus Christ. Even a little bit of it, you can move a mountain. A mountain, proverbially, anything that is remarkably difficult and seemingly impossible to be done. Something you can't do. If you, would, other gospels say, pray with faith. Matthew just uses the word faith. But the whole context is, some things only happen through prayer. And those prayers must be prayers of faith. They can't just be words you're mumbling. You really have to actually have a conviction. But even a little bit of it is enough to move a whole mountain. Then Jesus goes on to say, now I'm going to go die. And then he says, go fishing and find a silver coin to pay a tax for a temple. It's a pretty common experience I would say personally for myself, and I have to extend it to you all to say it is yours as well. And I know uh, for a matter of fact, counseling people pastorally and being involved in people's lives is that there's this regular experience I bump up against is that we tend to acknowledge the gospel for what it says, that Jesus Christ has loved us. And therefore, Because it is true that if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are considered children of God. And that's an endearing term, to be considered a child of God. But then, there's this pesky little thing called life and reality, in which we regularly feel that maybe it's true, of course, that God loves us, but I have it on good evidence, based on my present circumstances and life and feelings and emotions, that he really might not like me that much. I also happen to, you say, tend toward guilt or sin from time to time. That doesn't bode well for my conscience. And then the circumstances in my life tend to lead me to a conclusion to maybe infer that he might love me, but uh, obviously he doesn't like me too much because of this trial or this lost loved one or this uh, debate or heartache in my life. And that's a regular, I'd say, vicissitude of all of our existence is that, yes, God loves me, but from a distance. Obviously, if he loved me enough, this wouldn't be the case. And if he loved me enough, I wouldn't be so burdened by my life that I feel like sometimes maybe I shouldn't even or couldn't even approach him. The difference between love and like. Long time ago, I was particularly counseling one person that way, in which they said, yeah, I know God loves me, but I am pretty sure, convinced actually, that he really doesn't like me. 
The source of the confusion, of course, is we've never seen this in our life. He is your father, and he loves you. But what father have you ever had that has truly loved you, truly loved you? The best father that any of us could have ever had in this room has fallen short. Any spiritual leadership, people in your life, myself even included pastorally, in some way have a spiritual leadership over your life and represent some type of ability to speak the word of God of truth to you. Yes, but the messenger is incredibly faulty. right? So whether it be the spiritual leaders in your life, whether it be your home life, your father, your mother, whoever represented this idea of a family of love, that you are children of God and God loves you, Yes, but what does that mean in the backdrop of all of our experiences which are marred and imperfect? Aside from that, the real circumstances of our life, whether it be disease, division, consternation, depression, anxiety, and everything between, and finally, of course, even grieving this week as a church for Norm to have to suffer some level of sting in this thing called death. The Lord loves me. Well, see, the thing that, and this is the thing that's hard, particularly I know as we all grow, we become accustomed to this idea of death. My experience, particularly in the medical field, is to be around death pretty regularly for five days a week for eight years, seeing a lot of people die. At the funeral viewing yesterday, There's a different type of crying between how the adults cried and how the children cried. And I will tell you, I don't cry much unless it's maybe sometimes preaching, which I try not to do that, uh, and thinking about the glories of God and the gospel, but I don't cry much over death. Um, But when I heard, like, the small children crying yesterday, oh, they got me. They almost got me. They almost got me. Because... I think there's something to that about being called a child of God. One of them said, it's not fair. It's just not fair as he drove away in the Lincoln. And the thing that was hard about that one was because they're so young and they're not used to this. And their expectation was a much more innocent, ideal version of love. Now the problem, the problem with us saying we are children of God is that, yes, God loves me, but I know how this world works. And sometimes I feel like he actually doesn't really like me. My hope is to draw out of this the reality that when the scriptures say you must rejoice in your suffering, that is really what it means. And not because you're supposed to try to force yourself to. Not in an irrational kind of joy. A perfectly, and the point of these words, rational words, hopefully, Lord willing, a rational sermon, to give you a rational reason to rejoice in all things. And to understand that he loves you. And in all circumstances, he likes you. He likes you. See, this is the reality that we're told in Psalm 139. 
your eyes. They saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days of my life before they even were. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. If I could number them, they would be like the sand on the shore. That is your God. That in the midst of all of your life, from the formation of yourself in the womb, to the vicissitudes of the good and the bad, yes, to your final death, He is constantly thinking of you, considering you. He has written a whole book of you. That every day of your life is accounted for. That every moment you rise, He thinks of you. He sees you. He actually loves you, but not only that, He likes you. See, what parent here thinks of their child this way? Could you say you think of your child even five, ten times a day when they're not around your presence? That you think, I wonder how they are here. I'll send a prayer for them here. I'll consider them this way. I'll, when do they get home, what will it be like? If they're grown, what are they doing? How many times can you put your mind to even have that outward-focused love toward a child? We're told, particularly, that our God considers us so much so that if you were to even try to count the sand of the sea, you would fall asleep. And the psalm says, and I awake and you're still with me. As I was just considering, meditating upon your consideration of me, you never leave me. See, the setting here with this gospel that we have in Matthew, particularly is a teaching of Jesus on the triumph of faith. That if you have faith, even like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You can say to this mountain, be moved from here to there, and it must obey you. It must happen if you have faith like that of a mustard seed. And the interpretation, Jesus clearly says, what I'm saying is, nothing will be impossible for you. Okay? Right after that, Jesus says, now I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. They will kill me now. And in three days I will rise which seems absolutely antithetical, opposite to exactly what Jesus just said. And so then we go to Capernaum, which is the place most likely by tradition where Peter lived, and they're most likely living in Peter's house. And so these tax collectors come to Peter, as Jesus and all his disciples are most likely in Peter's house. They're looking for a two drachma tax. This is not a Roman tax. This is a tax for the temple down in Jerusalem. They say, does your teacher pay this tax? Peter, representing the whole house, just assumes and says, sure, yes, of course. He's a good Jew. He's going to pay the tax. And before Peter even gets to follow up with Jesus, Jesus comes to him privately and says, what do you think, Peter? What do you think? The kings of this earth, when they collect tax, when Herod collects tax, when Augustus collects tax, Claudius collects tax, all these Roman emperors, do you think they're taxing their own children? And Peter says, of course, no. They tax the other people, the strangers, the ones who are outside the house. And then Jesus simply says, well, then therefore, I guess the sons are free. We have no reason to pay this tax. I'm the son of God. That's my father's house. They came to you to get a tax, but, he says, in order to not cause offense, 
go fishing? Go down to the water and catch a fish. The first one, the first one you find, open its mouth, is a silver coin, a drachma. Pay it for you and for myself. See, this temple tax is in Exodus 30 in some way. It was meant to be a one-time payment for all the men in Israel who are 20 years old and above. For any census, it was uh, for multiple reasons to support the temple. That, that tax was to support the Levites, the priests. That is, a class of people who were closer to God than the rest. A class of people who worked in the very house of God, walked in the courts of God, went into the holy place, went into the holy of holy place. They were allowed to actually go into God's house. And all of Israel had to pay money for them in their salaries and to support the building and the fund. Interesting. And so there's some extension of that here in Jesus' time in which a four drachmas, which is a Greek coin, would have equaled one Jewish shekel. So that's why it's a one shekel in the fish's mouth produces four drachmas, two and two. Two for Jesus, two for Peter. Perfect math. Matches nicely. Seems almost planned that the fish should do it that way. Jesus changes all this to say we no longer are subsidizing separation between you and the Father. Because that's what this tax was for. To support the temple and the Levites and the priests. The other people that were closer to God than him. And Jesus is simply saying, now wait a minute. If I am, as I have been saying, the Son of God, why should I have to pay this tax for my Father's house? I happen to be the only one with the actual right to walk in there anytime I feel free. And so he says, we're going to do away with this. But in order to not find offense, there's this reality of the fish. See, he draws an analogy that human rulers don't do this. Human rulers, it's a common human experience that you favor those who are closest to you. That, of course, any great human ruler or parents or anyone who has a son or a daughter, you're just going to defer to them. You're just going to love them. You might even actually like them. You might even actually favor them. And so Jesus simply says, does this make any sense to you? Isn't this the way, this isn't the way things work? Why should I pay the tax? I and the Father are one. That's my house. He wants me to pay tax for my house. He says, no, no, no. We're not going to do this. And you would say, and this is where we all are. You would say, well, yes, of course. Jesus is purely loved by the Father. Jesus can walk right in anytime he wants and kick his shoes off whenever he feels because God loves Jesus. And yes, he even likes Jesus. Do you see what he did? Peter, this one's for you too. He has changed all things. There is no temple in Jerusalem for a reason right now. Because as Galatians says, all are sons of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That if you lay hold of Christ through faith. If you apprehend him with the eyes of your mind. 
If you seek him with the intellect of the word and the spirit, you are a son of God. And yes, women are sons of God in Galatians because it is a federal term. It is a legal term. It is saying you have the rights of sonship. That's why men are the bride of Christ because they're in the church and women are the sons of God. Because these metaphors represent status, not gender or anything. They represent ability, access. That men and women are the sons of God. That men and women are the bride of Christ. Because they have the ability to walk right into your father's home. Anytime you wish. Anytime you wish. And to separate from this body is to only go there even more to the actual real temple. For the temple below was nothing more than an artificer, an image of the real temple that was. The one that Jesus actually ascended to. And so he's saying, why would I pay tax for a few bricks when I actually have come from the temple of God? And so he pays for Peter. And if he pays for Peter, the gospel, the message is that he's paying for you. It says in Exodus 30 that this tax was a ransom. It was to pay for the men. Pay for their life. The rich and the poor, they had to only pay to drachma. Didn't matter. It, wasn't a, it was a flat tax. It didn't matter if you were wealthy or not. Because it, didn't, it wasn't contingent upon your income. It was contingent upon your life. The tax was for your life. That these Levites and priests would go into the temple for you on your behalf, for your life, so that you don't die, of course, in God's holiness. So you pay the tax for them to go do the dangerous work of entering into the holy place of God. But here, Jesus has separated, done away with, subsidizing this separation between us and God. Because he actually has become the substitution, the ransom paid. The reason for, he just mentioned, I'm going to the cross. Why would I pay for a tax? I'm going to pay the real thing. I'm going to open this. When he died, the earth shook and the temple shook. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. From heaven to earth. God ripped the temple curtain open and made access into the Holy of Holies. Why? Would we ever pay a tax, Jesus says. So of course, this would actually have to mean then, this would actually have to mean then, that God of course loves you because we know God loves. But He actually likes you. You don't understand. See, you don't invite people over to your house with undefined undefined term limits unless you really like them. Visitors or friends, family don't leave. The sons are free. Visitors come for a dinner. The children stay forever. The sons are free. Here, Peter, here's your admission prize. Into my father's house. And I often, I often have racked my brain Years, I mean years, questioning how close can I really get to God? Like what are the limitations of my close communion with Him in this life? Because there are limitations. There's more to be had. We will die. We will go to be with Him in a more being with Him than we are here now. And we will resurrect and then be with Him in the eternal state. So there is a limit of only how close you can go. 
but I don't know what that limit is. All I know is that if you think that he doesn't like you, you'll never come. If you think he's just tolerating you, you'll never draw near. Do you realize James says, draw near to God and the same promise is equally true. He will draw near to you. That if you give yourself to prayer and you give yourself to fall on the face of God, he will meet with you. Yes, when Jeremiah says, you seek him with all your heart. And that, of course, would have to go back with the other prayer that Jesus is talking about. There is a prayer and there's a prayer of faith. There is a prayer in which you throw one up and then you move on and scroll on your phone. And there is a prayer which you don't need for a week and you fall on your face. And you search him with all your heart, as Jeremiah says. And if you search for him with all your heart, Jeremiah says, you'll find him. And also that happens to be the kind of prayers that move mountains. So you can go into his home. You're invited to his house. The invitation is that he likes you. So seek him. Seek him diligently. Seek him regularly. The problem then, of course, is our circumstances. Yes, the Lord loves me. Because he has to in Jesus. But does he like me? You're telling me he likes me. Yes. That's what the fish is all about. See? He also likes you in the midst of your whole life. And this is the problem we have. The circumstances. That's the problem. Because there are many circumstances. Whether they be our own sins. Our own suffering. Our bad fortune, we might say, that cause us to recoil and say, Lord, why? Why do I have this disease? Why do I have this problem? Why is my marriage this way? Why are my children that way? You say, Lord, why are you letting this be the case? You're not liking me like you should. You're not as close. No. It all ties together to Jesus Christ. See, this random, seemingly random, and very particular direction to go fishing is perfectly planned. It's a proverbial image actually used throughout the ancient world of finding wealthy treasures in the mouths of fishes. So it's sometimes debated whether Jesus actually meant for Peter to go do this, literally, or if he's proverbially saying, we're going to get the money. Either way, the point of it being is that it's an image of serendipity. That is, good luck. It's an image of good fortune. An event that happens by chance, but just happens to be a happy event. A happy way of things happening. Oh, isn't it, isn't it just so happy I happened to owe a tax? And isn't it just so happy this fish happens to have that money in its mouth? Serendipity. So Jesus says... Go, therefore, fishing this way and find this silver drachma and take it. It's an interesting reality, though. The reason he says he wants to do it this way is so that he doesn't offend the temple people, the authorities. Which is baffling because almost on every other page, Jesus is always offending them. He doesn't seem to be very output by offending them. See, just in Matthew 12, he said that something greater than the temple is here, talking about the Sabbath. And they were very offended by that. And in John 2, he said, when you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. Talking about himself, his body, being the temple, greater than the real temple. 
His body is the temple. And they were offended by that. He was crucified as a blasphemer because they accused him of being a terrorist who threatened to tear down the temple. So he's perfectly fine offending people about the temple. My belief, we don't know, but my guess is, Jesus does not want to offend them because it's not his time. He will offend them. He will offend them terribly. He's going to go into Jerusalem pretty soon and overturn the tables and whip everybody. So why doesn't he want to offend them now? It's not his time. Because the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. They must kill him. He must die on the third day be raised from the dead. See? John 7 says this. They sought to arrest him, to lay hands on him. And John says, but they didn't because it wasn't his time. Because the Son of Man had to be delivered into the hands of men, that they would kill him, that he would rise on the third day. Luke 4, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. They'd seek to throw him. A whole crowd pushes him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off the cliff. And Jesus just walks right through the cloud, crowd and walks away. Miraculously. Because he's not supposed to die on a cliff. He's supposed to die on a cross. There is nothing in the life of Jesus Christ that cannot happen apart from God's plan and will for the purpose of his life. And the same is true for you. He had to save the world, and you have to play your part in his sufferings and salvation for the good works he's prepared for you, as Ephesians says, that everything in your life has to happen the way it says in Psalm 139 in the book that was written of you before you were formed. You have to do it this way. So therefore, if Jesus had to walk through the crowd and not die on a cliff, and they tried to lay hold of him, but they couldn't because it wasn't his time, of course, he cannot possibly offend them at this moment. Therefore, there has to be a tax. Therefore, there has to be a coin in that fish's mouth. It has to be this way. There are particular providences that the Lord opens up into your life that are seemingly normal, but no yet more definitive and miraculous than catching a fish that matches your IRS bill. It has to be this way. That's why when you pray, the mountains will be moved. Praying in faith. Praying in the reality that you know two things. You are called to draw close to God. You are his son. So any prayer, any orientation you have in your life that is bringing you closer to God, whether you make a million dollars and whether your loved one dies, if it brings you closer to God, that's the mountain that must be moved. And God's purpose for your life is nothing more than to advance his kingdom in this world for his glory. Therefore, Jesus' open promise stands. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. All your prayers will be answered, oriented toward that goal. If needing a silver coin causes you to advance God's kingdom in this world, you'll go fishing and find a silver coin. If Jesus has to advance the kingdom of God in this world by dying on the cross down south in Jerusalem, not up north in Copernicum, he cannot offend the Jews in Copernicum, the same way he has to offend the Jews in the south. Because he has to go south, he has to get on that cross, and he has to die. Therefore, in order to not find offense, he'll find a silver coin. It all has to work for God's plans and purposes. This is the gospel. This changes everything. See how now 
all things can be rejoiced in. Not just that he loves you from a distance. He's invited you to the home and he likes you. And all the circumstances of your life, good or bad, are oriented toward his liking you. He's drawing you close and he's fulfilling this glorious. I mean, there is no plan you can make for your life that cannot even draw a shadow near to the purposes of the eternal kingdom of God that you particularly have to fill out in your life. That you particularly have to fill out. That is, in Genesis, we're told the Messiah should crush the head of the serpent. And then in Romans, Paul tells the Roman church, now trample the snake with your feet. Well, I thought that was Jesus' job. It is. And it's also yours. You have to advance the kingdom. And all of God's sovereign resources will be driven to you in that end if you give yourself to that prayer. Everything you need will be given. Every mountain will be moved. And if it doesn't look like a mountain's being moved, it's not because he doesn't like you. And it's not because that promise isn't true. It's because that's not the mountain that's holding back the kingdom of God in your life. How do I know that? Oh, Jesus, Golgotha is the name of a mountain that he died on. It was never moved from his life. Calvary, perfect son of God, full of faith, holiness. There's no reason the Father would never not answer a whisper from his mouth. And he prayed, Father, let this cross pass from me. And the mountain did not move because that mountain was not contrary to advancing the kingdom of God in his life or ours. Do you see that through all the good and all the bad, This is what makes sense. This is why your prayers can be answered. And if they're not answered, know this. They're intended for your suffering, for his glory, for the kingdom to be worked out in your life, which Romans 14 says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the spirit worked out in your heart. 200 years before Jesus, in the Han Dynasty, there was a particular parable. Ending with this, it's a parable that has no knowledge of the gospel. It's a parable I fear that many Christians identify with more than the writings of Matthew. It's the story of the Chinese farmer. It goes like this. A farmer had one horse. And one day that horse ran away. The neighbor came to him and said, Oh, I'm so sorry for the bad news. You must be so sad. The Chinese farmer said, We'll see. A few days later that horse came back with another wild horse following it. So now the man who had one horse had two. The neighbor came and said, Wow, congratulations. What good news. The word for gospel is good news. You must be so happy. And the Chinese farmer simply just said, We'll see. Well, as they corralled that horse and trained it, 
His son got on the horse, his only son, as the Chinese proverb goes, and he fell off and broke both his legs. Then his neighbor came and said, I'm so sorry. You must be so sad. And he said, we'll see. Around that time, a war broke out, and there was a draft for all young, able-bodied men to go to war. It was a terrible war, and they all died. But his son was spared from the draft because of his broken legs. The neighbor said, you must be so happy that your son's still alive. And he said, we'll see. You don't know. Unless there is a sovereign king who has written the books of our life before they were. Unless there is a gospel of a kingdom, of not a circular orientation toward history, of cyclical meaningless events, of good and bad, what does it matter? But no, a kingdom, a direction, an end, a resurrection. There is a gospel in which a man prayed for a mountain to be moved the mountain of Calvary, and it was not moved. And in Matthew 27, it says, Then they crucified him there, and they divided his garments. And those passed by, wagged their heads, and disdained him, and said, If you are the Son of God, he said he would take down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And he said to them on the cross, If you are the Son of God, then save yourself. And the Pharisees, the chief priests, those who ruled the temple that he didn't want to pay the tax to, came by and they said, save yourself. You said you would save others, but he can't even save himself. If he trusts in the Lord, and he quotes the psalm, let him deliver him if he delights in him. That is, if you claim you're the son of God, then maybe God might like you. And if God might like you, he might get you off that cross. For he said, I am the son of God. And if Jesus maybe had a voice left as he was agonizing on that cross, the beauty of the gospel is that. He could have simply said, we will see. And he rose from the grave. And all who have faith with him rose from that grave 2,000 years ago. That no matter what happens, if you lose your horse, if you lose your son, if you lose it all like Job, if you gain it all back, It is all oriented toward a new heaven and earth in which it is always good news. The bad is good news. The good is good news because the gospel is good news that all our sufferings, all our mountains, all our burdens find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Everything that he brings into your life must work out for your good and for the glory of his kingdom. The Father's sovereignty is the Son's serendipity. Everything is serendipity. Dear Father God, we thank you you have made us sons. We thank you, Lord, that we know the mysteries of this life. And it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to suffer it. We understand the sufferings of this life hurt. And we understand the sufferings of your cross were more. We understand there are mountains in our life that must be moved and nothing will stop them. And we understand there are things that we see as mountains that are actually not opposed to your kingdom at all. In fact, 
you built your kingdom on the mountain of Calvary. And we thank you, Lord, for not answering the son's prayer. We thank you for letting him love us so that we might be loved as you love him. That we might be loved as you love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand if you're able?